Sexual health education saves lives. It's an upstream approach that supports addressing root causes of negative health outcomes and gives students the right information to support their well being. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers alike. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Ever Active Schools. Each episode, we speak with expert guests to talk about different topics related to school-based health promotion. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jocelyn Graham and Caitlin Hill from Alberta Health Services, and we are going to broach the topic of sexual health education, Uh, what we as educators need to know, how we can build comfort, and how we can ensure we are supporting holistic well-being for our students and that we're equipped to do that. So before we begin, we want to situate our conversation in the land. We're recording this episode in Mokinstis, which is the traditional and ancestral territories of the Blackfoot peoples, Sutina Nation, Iyehe Nakoda Nations, and Métis Nation of Alberta. And we express our gratitude to the elders, the knowledge keepers, the language, land, and water protectors in the past, present, and those who are in the making today. As an uninvited guest on this land, it's important for me personally to share with you, you know, that this acknowledgement of the land is simply just a reminder. It's not all of the work that we have to do. It's, it's just a reminder of our responsibilities to the First Peoples, to the land, as well as to the relationality with one another. And while this verbal recognition serves as a form of resistance to forgetting about colonial violence, and coloniality as it lives today, it's really important that we do more than just make this acknowledgement. We have to live differently with this knowledge. So as our listeners probably know, I always like to make a connection between our land acknowledgement and our podcast conversation topics, uh, because I think it's important to invite our listeners to think a bit differently about the topic at hand. So today our conversation is on comprehensive sexual health, And Scott Morganson reminds us that colonization and its legacies are not only about the land, but it's also about bodies as well. Uh, Nora Samaran also adds that there are so many connections between land and the gendered body. And it's not surprising from this point of view that colonialism would simultaneously assault bodies and lands, insisting in both instances on denying free, prior, and informed consent. So in that way, we can't really separate colonization of lands from colonization of bodies. And I do uh, want to just touch on, you know, the notion that gendered norms, the erasure of diverse gender identities, and the denial of kinship and familiar structures were a fundamental imperative for colonization. And so we have to keep that in mind and recognize that the conversation that we're having today has been shaped by that historical present and those relationships to colonization will come up uh, as we reflect on these key concepts. So I want to invite our listeners to reflect on how these colonial legacies continue to shape how sexual health education is taken up. And I also want to encourage folks to find ways to disrupt those legacies as as they exist. And uh, I'm really pleased to chat with our guests today about how we can support really thoughtful sexual health instruction and, and learning and teaching practices with our students. 
So a reminder to our listeners at this point in time, I hope you've like put on your shoes or your boots or, or what have you, and maybe you're headed outside for a walk. Uh, podcasts are portable and a great opportunity to pursue wellness while you listen. So I do want to invite you to, to do that. Uh, maybe get some things done off your to-do list, get active, take the dog for a walk, what have you. As we begin, I would like to invite our guests to share some of their go-to habits for taking care of their well-being. So Jocelyn, maybe I'll invite you to begin by just sharing some of those habits that uh, keep you well. Sure. So for physical activity, I've been playing tennis for a while now. And I also love that it's a social sport and I've met a lot of great people. Um, And just one of my favorite ways to stay active. And then I've also been working on just setting aside time in the evening where I try not to look at my phone. I just find it so easy to get burnt out after looking at screens all day from work. So I really like to just try and give my eyes and my brain a break. Love that. Really love that. (laughs) Caitlin, how about you? Um, I think since I'm kind of missing the gym environment, I haven't really been able to get get back to the gym since I don't go into work currently. I actually try to go for a walk every lunch hour and I tune into a podcast and I just find it such a great way to kind of get a physical break from my desk, get a few steps in and also just like catch up on current events or, you know, something that I wanted to learn more about. And it's just a really great way to kind of clear my head. And I have a a great 5k loop or so that I do and I'm right by the river. So it's really beautiful. Um, And then another habit that I've started over the last few months is to, I try to stop a few times a day and I just do like a five minute meditation and I've been using Insight Timer. Um, I know there's a lot of other free apps out there. I've just found this really helpful in kind of grounding myself, trying to reduce my stress a little bit and give my nervous system a break. Um, And this is a habit that I got into while I was working in the COVID response. Now that I'm back with my old job, it's not quite as chaotic, but this certainly helped a lot when things were really stressful at work. So that's what I've been up to. Wow, I imagine. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Really appreciate that. We know multitasking can be challenging, but we do on this podcast, at least, support the multitasking of podcasts, listening, and and going for a walk, too. Excellent. So I think we've had a nice little introduction to you by way of your healthy habits or your habits for well-being, I should say. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about yourselves and why you've come to care about health promotion. And maybe, Caitlin, we'll start with you this time. You bet. So I've been in this role. um, So the role is called health promotion facilitator on the sexual and reproductive health team. I've been in this role for about seven years and I have my master's in public health with a focus on health promotion. But my interest in health promotion actually started years ago when I worked at a, like a health and fitness camp in Northern California. And it was this really wonderful program. It was really comprehensive. It focused on, you know, physical, mental, emotional health And, you know, the participants were taught kind of the fundamentals of how to take care of themselves in different ways and the connection between all these different types of wellness. But it was really apparent that when everyone returned home after camp, if their parents or their guardians weren't on the same page or they didn't hold the same knowledge or values, that this entire experience was basically all for naught. So this really showed me how layered and nuanced health promotion and behavior change is in general. Um, And that was really the draw to working in sexual health. So 
sexual health is much the same. I often think, how can we expect children and youth to understand and value their sexual health if they're not supported by trusted adults who do as well, um, whether that's you know teachers, parents, or other adults in their lives? Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that introduction. Jocelyn, how about you? Yeah, so I've been working with Caitlin on this team for six years now. And for my background, I have a master's degree in nutrition. And in school, I learned a lot about health promotion, behavior change, health marketing, and knowledge translation. So that really gave me a good foundation of skills that have really translated well into my work in sexual health. I started out working on a project with this team that focused on pregnancy, nutrition, and weight gain. So that's where that link comes between nutrition and sexual and reproductive health. It can kind of seem like a weird jump, but that's how it happened for me. And then I moved to working on the Teaching Sexual Health Initiative, which I've just found really intriguing and also just find it to be such rewarding work. Thank you both for sharing that. And, it, and it's clear that there are lots of different entry points into uh, health promotion generally, and I think uh, around sexual health education as well. So I'm thinking about my experience as a teacher. I've been a teacher for about 10 years now. And often when we are learning how to teach something new, we look to foundational knowledge or skills, really the basics of what we need to know before we can plan that learning and, and kind of facilitate our instruction for students. What do you think are some of the foundational skills or concepts that teachers need to understand before they take on teaching sexual health for their students? That's such a good question. Um, I think one of the most important concepts for teachers to understand, regardless of the grade they're teaching, is really the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and how to be respectful and inclusive when they're teaching. So ensuring that children feel seen, heard, and respected from a young age, we know that this can have such a lasting effect on their mental, emotional, and physical health. And so I think one strategy that could help reinforce this concept is really being aware that you're not reinforcing this notion that gender is a binary construct. So moving away from using terms like, okay, boys and girls, to try to be really focused on saying, okay, good morning, students, good morning, everyone, you know, just little shifts like that. Further, I think working towards not making cis normative assumptions, like assuming everyone has a mom and a dad, you know, saying things like, please make sure your parent signs this tonight or your parent or caregiver rather than your mom or dad, that can go a long way. So showing that you aren't making assumptions about their sexual orientation, your student's gender identity, or even their family structure can really make a child feel respected and supported. And then another concept I think that's really important to understand as well is uh, consent. And that really truly starts with using proper terms for body parts and teaching bodily autonomy at a young age. There was this really lovely video that went around uh, a few years ago, and it was of a teacher welcoming her students to a classroom. And she had four different signs up, and she would ask the students to choose which sign. And so they could choose between a high five, a hug, a dance or a handshake. It was something like that. And the student would point to which one they wanted. And that's how they were welcomed to the class that day. And so just allowing them to make their own decisions about their body is so important. And it really lays the foundation for more discussions on consent as children grow older. 
We also know that the foundation of consent, which is that, you know, teaching bodily autonomy and proper terms, this is directly related to and also protective against sexual abuse. And it's really foundational to developing healthy relationships. So I would say those are two really important fundamentals that I think teachers should kind of hone in on before they start teaching sexual health. I so appreciate your response because I think in my experience as a teacher, I didn't receive any pre-service education specific to sexual health for students. And I think that there are some significant gaps in that. So when, when teachers come to learn about this, they often turn to things like anatomy, language, definitions. And what you've shared is really helpful because not only does it draw on those key concepts that I think a lot of teachers are anxious about, um, and I think we'll we'll dive into uh, that conversation a little bit uh, later on. But also, when we think of consent and even uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, I think there are lots of misunderstandings about how those are age appropriate. And I appreciate that uh, you've emphasized that those things are broached, you know, from kindergarten to grade twelve. How they're taken up is framed in age appropriate ways, but that they're crucial. You can't expect to teach consent to junior high, high school students when they have not had opportunities to learn about their bodily autonomy to date, especially in the school setting. So I really appreciate that you shared that and shared those examples. And we'll find that video and add it in the show notes so that folks can see an example of that because that's such a such a great practice. So part of the conversation today is because we know that sexual health is kind of entangled in all of these complex discourses and there's tension around it. It doesn't have to be negative tension. It can be productive tension, I think. But nevertheless, there are often conversations about like, what is the role of teachers in sexual health? And what are the roles that parents play in that? So uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask that, uh, Jocelyn, I think, to you, what is our role as teachers in taking up this learning? And what should we know about what parents' roles are? So both parents and teachers play a role in sexual health education. Parents are really that important source of information for laying the basis for a child's attitudes, their morals, their values, and they really are a child's primary source of education, and even in ways besides having those direct conversations. So children are watching, they're observing their parents' relationship with others, how they treat people and communication styles. So parents are really teaching their children all the time, whether they know it or not. And then parents also add that component for having conversations and learning about family beliefs and values. Then ideally what kids learn in school complements the conversations parents are having at home. And really school-based education helps to make sure that all students have access to consistent, accurate, and up-to-date information as part of a comprehensive sexual health education program. And so the main role of teachers is to teach the sexual health outcomes from the curriculum, but they're also role models for students and credible sources of information. And the topic of sexual health can be one of the most important things a teacher can teach. It lasts a lifetime and it really sets that stage for a student's well-being. Teachers are really teaching students sexual health education, not just sex education. And so what I'm trying to get at with that is it's really about the broader concept of sexuality and not just biology. 
So looking at sexual health as including a person's physical, mental, emotional, and social well-being in relation to their sexuality. That means addressing things like consent and media literacy, personal values, decision-making, self-esteem and body image. These are all aspects of enhancing sexual health. And then we also know from research that students want more than just the scientific facts and about risk protection. Um, They really do want information about relationships, consent, communication and dating. So that all kind of ties into that education as well. Excellent. Thank you. That I think is such an important paradigm shift because more broadly, health education often is not prioritized the same way as core course learning is. And to think about the lifetime impact that you may have and the importance of teachers in those conversations, I think is is really helpful to know. So thank you for framing it that way. So the question that that is just kind of coming up for me is we're seeing a bit of a shift around sexual health for a long period of time, especially in some more urban centers. Um, There have been external sources who come into the school to teach sexual health education. And we're seeing this shift to rely less on those external sources and support teachers more to take that up. Just because, you know, teachers have established the classroom communities, they offer those positive and lasting relationships. But there's anxiety that's come up around that. And as I mentioned, you know, teachers may not have a lot of training in this area. And there are lots of questions around how do we support the parents' role in sexual health education? So how can teachers feel more confident to teach sexual health or or at least approach it a little bit more open-minded and with confidence in their role and their ability to support this kind of learning for their students? Yeah, it's certainly common for teachers to feel that a nurse or educator would be better situated to handle the curriculum. But honestly, that personal relationship that teachers have with students really makes them an effective educator. They already have that connection with students that they've built. And I guess just think about the message having a guest speaker sends to students about sexuality. So you wouldn't bring in someone else to teach about multiplication in a math class, for example. By a teacher teaching it themselves, it really shows that it's an important and normal topic that we can all talk about together. And another thing just for teachers to consider is if they bring in a speaker, once that speaker leaves, if a student has a question later on, they might not feel like they can come to that teacher to ask. So if you're a teacher and the topic of sexual health does make you uncomfortable, we want you to know, one, you're not alone. It's normal to feel that way. And two, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be open to learning and practicing in order to get more comfortable. So just make sure you're giving the topic adequate time, not rushing through it or leaving it to the end, hoping you don't get any questions. And I would say the key to getting comfortable is preparation, practice and repetition. Just remember that it's okay to laugh and to blush or get your giggles out. If you need to hesitate, that's all okay. I just promise you it does get easier with time. That is really comforting to know, I think, for our listeners. I also really appreciate your math example. I'm chuckling as a math teacher, you know, having a guest speaker come in to teach about multiplication and then we never talk about multiplication again. The the learning would be so stilted and, and so incomplete if that were the case. So I really appreciate you kind of painting that picture for us. And in connection to your last uh, response, 
one thing that comes up is around like our boundaries and, you know, the clear parameters around teacher student positionality in, in the class. So, you know, as educators, we obviously don't talk about sex in the sexual activity sense with our students. This is not like casual conversation that comes up. We very intentionally vet media resources to make sure that they don't have inappropriate references. The professional standards for teachers really explicitly set up parameters around what is ethical and what isn't. And so as we approach the subject of sexual health education, I think those fears, thoughts, anxieties kind of bleed in. And so I'm wondering if we could help to separate some of those pieces out and support our listeners in understanding what sexual health education is and what it is not. Absolutely. Well, I think the distinction to be made with this question is that we want to promote comprehensive sexual health education which in simple terms doesn't only focus on abstinence or on negative health outcomes like STIs or preventing pregnancy. Basically, the motto behind comprehensive sexual health education is that knowledge is power. So when a child learns about their developing body, understands the fundamentals of sexual activity, what it entails, how to make healthy sexual decisions, how to navigate consent conversations, that they will make better, more informed choices. And the research even tells us that they often delay sexual activity because of their understanding of its physical and emotional components. So I would say comprehensive sexual health is well-rounded, inclusive, and evidence-based. It is not promoting sexual activity, nor is it completely ignoring the possibility of you know, children and youth engaging in sexual activity. Good sexual health education really fosters the development of decision-making and critical thinking and communication skills in children and youth, and it really provides them with the information they need in order to make decisions about their bodies and their health, and also the skills needed to develop healthy relationships. And this is from childhood to adolescence all the way into adulthood. Brilliant. And I think you really helped also to clarify even further the teacher's role, because I think a lot of this is just caught up in fears and myths. And so what you're really saying is it's it's not like we're changing the boundaries that we have with our students, but we are empowering them with evidence and information and equipping them with decision-making tools. And I really appreciate you drawing on research around that as well, because like I said, the myths and fears definitely are stirred up in these conversations. And it's so important to return to what it is that we know and evidence-based practices. With that in mind, I think that helps to assuage some of the fears. But how could we be confident and comfortable with our own boundaries as adults and teachers broaching sexual health as the subject of teaching and learning? Because I know for some of my colleagues, that might be anxiety provoking, or they might have a different framework of values that they feel maybe doesn't align with what they're being asked to teach. So we like to suggest that before teaching human sexuality, it can be really helpful to just take some time to reflect. So think about what your own sexual health education was like, what did you feel was missing, what was helpful, and 
just really take a good look at what are your own values and biases. And we actually have a section on our website where we list out value statements to help teachers assess their values because because these can influence teaching style. And while there's no perfect way to approach sexuality education, again, just having that open attitude and willingness to learn really does go a long way and will help you to become a good sexuality educator. One of the more practical tips we like to offer to being more comfortable and confident with boundaries is to just start the first class by setting ground rules with students. Again, we have more information on our website how to set this up, but it really helps to outline expectations for students and it gives the teacher something to refer back to when they feel like a boundary is being crossed. Some of the more specific ground rules, just to give some examples of ones that we like to suggest, are one, confidentiality. So letting students know that what gets shared in the classroom stays in the classroom. Uh, So don't go out on the playground and talk about what someone asked in class or kind of keep everything contained in that classroom for a conversation. And then we also like to encourage the ground rule of no sharing of personal stories or information. Just getting that right up front for both teachers and students, because students often feel pressure to be more experienced than they actually are. So they overshare, they invent experiences, or they become quiet and don't ask because they don't want to appear inexperienced. So this rule really helps take the pressure off students. And then because it also applies to the teacher, it lets students know that personal questions are off limits. We also like to encourage the ground rule of respect the rights and needs of others. And then also you could have the ground rule of it's okay to have fun. So things don't have to be serious all the time. It's okay to laugh just as long as that message is getting across to students. I also just want to mention that it's okay to acknowledge when you as a teacher feel uncomfortable. Most of us have been taught some degree of shame or secrecy or taboo around sex and sexual health, which can make it embarrassing to talk about. And it's going to take time to get comfortable with, you know, sex and sexual health as a subject. But having a safe space for students to explore what society mostly tells us is taboo is just an amazing gift you can give students. I couldn't agree more. I think that's really helpful to remind teachers the importance of those boundaries, the tools that we can use to support those boundaries, and also the ways that we can support for relational approaches to these conversations that can help to normalize those things in a way that um, moves student learning forward. Something that is on a lot of teachers' minds, and you did touch on that, uh, Caitlin, off the top, is ensuring that lessons on sexual health are inclusive for all students. We're thinking about students inclusive of all genders, all sexualities, all abilities from different religious and cultural backgrounds. Are there some universal approaches that make it possible to affirm all of our students, knowing that they come from diverse backgrounds and experiences? And maybe you can share some ideas on that. Yeah, the importance of creating classrooms and spaces that are, you know, inclusive of all students and even more generally societies that are inclusive of all people is really becoming more and more prevalent and valued. And it's such a great move forward and really a much needed one. 
So I would say one approach would be, so assuming someone's gender identity or sexual orientation based on their appearance or assuming that young people are only attracted to the opposite sex, those are examples of where sex education may create spaces where all children and youth won't feel included. So inclusive sexual health education really means a change both in thinking and in language. We have a really great tool. It's simple and it's interactive on the website. It's called the Everybody Tool. And it lays out sex, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity. And it talks about the different terms, how they're different, how they intersect, and really how they make us the people that we are. As sex education content has historically really been focused on straight cisgender information, we know that many LGBTQ2S plus students did not or do not receive comprehensive sexual health education that really speaks to their gender identity or their sexual orientation. And in addition, we have, you know, cisgender students who aren't learning about all these other identities, and they also miss out on opportunities to learn about language and respectful conversations and relationships with their non-cisgender peers. So I think really uh, moving away from making those assumptions is one really important approach that teachers could take. I'm wondering if it's less about all students having the same belief systems towards this and more about providing students is is that the value like providing students with what they need and that's kind of one of the values of ensuring accessibility and inclusion yeah i think that's a big part of it so i think one assumption that we could have teachers make which i think would be a good assumption is to assume that there are lgbtq2s plus students in the room always just so that you're always being inclusive of them or doing your best to be inclusive of them I think some other values that can help create that accessibility and inclusion would be just really basic, non-judgmental, not making assumptions, being open to learning, as Jocelyn mentioned earlier, respecting others. Um, and then there's a really great new thing that we just heard about from our coworkers. So not just treating others how you want to be treated, which is the golden rule that we all know, but there's a new term that's come up called the platinum rule. And so that's treating others how they want to be treated. And I think that's really important. And so all of these values can really create a safe and accessible, inclusive learning space for students. And I think those values underpin welcoming classrooms year round, even outside of the topic of sexual health education. I think that's really helpful to know that, you know, these values may already be part of our practices as educators. And how can we tap into those values or shift our own paradigms to embody those values in the space of sexual health education and year round. Thinking about being non-judgmental, that's a tool that, that will help us work with all of our students um, more effectively. So how do we create environments then where we can enable students to leverage their own values in decision-making around sexual health and well-being? So kind of going back to that inclusive classroom, an inclusive classroom and specifically inclusive sex education can really help all students learn in a more accepting environment that acknowledges and celebrates all identities and experiences among all students. Queer youth's identities are affirmed, questioning youth are given a safe space to explore, and cisgender youth gain knowledge that they need to respectfully interact and become an ally to their peers. It's also really important to create a respectful space or classroom by respecting pronouns and avoiding stereotypes. So include examples in your teaching 
that acknowledge a wide variety of identities. And finally, and most importantly, and Jocelyn kind of touched on this already, it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to make mistakes. It's important to increase your understanding. And if you do make a mistake, acknowledge it, correct it, and move forward. I think people are really nervous to make a mistake and therefore they just don't engage at all. And I don't think that's the right way forward. I think engaging, acknowledging when you mess up and understand why it's not right and correcting it and moving forward. I think that's really the best way to create that environment for all students. Absolutely. And I appreciate the conversation around uh, creating supports for gender and sexual diverse youth has come up in this context. And I think this conversation is really helpful to supporting LGBTQ and two-spirit youth, even again, beyond sexual health education. I think oftentimes when we think about sexual health, that's when we start to think about how we support those students. But really, these strategies can support our students year-round in creating uh, inclusive classrooms and can equip teachers in feeling confident to meet students where they're at and support them. Like you say, how they want to be supported, not how we think we should support them. So switching gears a little bit, but related to one of those key fundamental concepts that you mentioned earlier, consent is something that comes up often within conversations about sexual health education. And Many approaches focus on teaching how to ask for consent or how to get consent. Uh, so we know that consent is key for healthy relationships and it's necessary for the reduction of sexual violence. But I think we have some gaps in teaching what to do when, you know, someone's asking for consent and then they hear no or they experience rejection. Karen B.K. Chan is an educator who talks about this in terms of building rejection tolerance, uh, which is, you know, the capacity to hear and accept the no. I'm wondering, how should teachers teach the whole process of consent and consent seeking? And why is that important? Just to start off my answer, we define consent as permission for something to happen, or an agreement to do something. Consent requires respect and communication, and it's about creating an environment of safety and comfort for everyone involved. And it includes knowing and respecting a person's own boundaries, as well as the boundaries of others. And so like you mentioned, consent really is the foundation of a sexual relationship. It's important to teach students how to ask for consent, how to say no, how to accept and respect when someone says no, but also how to be clear about giving an enthusiastic yes. That yes part is that idea of getting to know yourself, your boundaries, what you're comfortable with and your values, and also just feeling empowered to communicate that to others. Over the last few years, messaging as well as our understanding of rights, the law and sexual assault has changed. So it's extremely important to help students understand that sex without consent is sexual assault. Another thing to really focus on now is teaching consent for online interactions and relationships. So for example, with sexting, we need to teach how to think critically about sending, receiving, and sharing photos and videos online. In terms of the approach for teaching about consent, again, I'm going to point everyone to our website where we have a great section with information about consent, lesson plans, activities, and we have a video on consent that you can show to students. In these activities, we address that consent is an ongoing conversation. 
that it can't be implied by clothing or what has happened previously between two people. And we also want to help students acknowledge that different people will have different comfort levels with various activities. I think it's also important to help students learn about healthy versus unhealthy versus abusive relationships and understand what that means, as well as communication skills, promoting healthy sexuality to really empower people. And this all can help reduce the incidence of sexual assault. Really important resources. And again, we will share those resources so that listeners have access to them. You really highlighted a lot, I think, that I haven't thought about around consent education and I think around online practices and and sexting to specifically, there are sometimes gaps in how we teach about consent in that way. I'm wondering if there are any other gaps in consent education that we should know about. Uh, One thing that comes to mind, there's a concept uh, called emancipatory sex education that also brings in things like desire and pleasure into conversations about comprehensive sexual health so that it's not just focused on avoiding you know, pregnancy and, and risk. I'm wondering if you can speak to any other gaps that we should know about around consent education and perhaps how we can support that education in our classrooms day to day. I think I kind of already touched on this, but I think it's not just teaching how to say no, but then also saying yes, but saying yes based on your own boundaries. And I think that's where that emancipatory sex ed comes in, where you know what you're comfortable with, what your values are, what your feelings are, and you feel empowered to communicate that to others. So it's about saying no, but it's also about being able to say yes to what you're comfortable with. That's really helpful. And I think ultimately, there are opportunities to practice setting boundaries, having boundaries and exercising agency in classrooms in ways that don't just pertain to consent and sexual health. Related to this, you know, in the process of learning about consent and sexual decision making and healthy relationships, often, you know, students may come into new realizations about their prior experiences, or We will have students in our classrooms who have experienced sexual violence, and they might become activated or triggered in that environment. Uh, You know, this could show up as student disclosures about sexual violence. It could be student avoidance, resistance, or even, you know, students showing trauma responses. Could you share with us some strategies and need-to-know information about how we can teach sexual health in a trauma-informed way And how we can be prepared to support students who have experienced sexual violence before. And and I think we'll have to assume that we will have those students in our classroom. Absolutely. And good question. It's it's great to talk about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed education. Um, This really starts, again, by creating those safe, accessible, and inclusive classrooms for all students when you're providing comprehensive sexual health education. I think one of the more basic but important strategies that would really lay the groundwork for that safe and trusting environment is what Jocelyn talked about earlier. So discussing and agreeing on ground rules or group agreements that sometimes people call them and making sure that within those ground rules that there's language about respect, that there's language about confidentiality and anonymity and the right to pass or not participate or answer. All of those should be should be included there to make sure that it's trauma-informed. 
And as an educator, it's important to interrupt and address any seen or reported experiences of bullying, harassment, and sexual or gender-based violence. And further to that, I think that understanding how certain terms or words we use could feel shaming or judgmental and actively working on avoiding those words. So for instance, a teacher could say something as simple as, you shouldn't have sex with someone you don't know very well. This could easily be reframed to something like, it's important to communicate honestly and openly about safer sex and to give and get consent with your partner or partners. So this reframe kind of helps us move away from that word shouldn't, which is often, you know, very judgmental. And it moves towards the teaching point of um, having the students navigate and decide on their participation in sexual activity. So moving away from that shaming or judgment when teaching can help with trauma-informed education. And then depending on the topic and the content planned, it also might be helpful to provide a trigger warning before you deliver certain content. So it's important to let your students know that they can leave the room if they feel triggered. And so that could look like feeling panicked, having tightness in their chest, shallow breathing, their mind is racing, they might be shaking, and making sure that you create easy ways for students to go in and out of the classroom. So making sure you don't have to ask to leave. If you need to leave, just go. Furthermore, having supports in place for students who may feel triggered and actively respond to student disclosures if they arise. And then another part that I think is important in that trauma-informed sexual health is to really acknowledge the impacts and effects that historical or systemic factors have on a person's sexual and reproductive health. So we know that stigma, stereotyping, Prejudice, discrimination, they all have really tangible impacts on health outcomes, including sexual and reproductive health outcomes for our BIPOC community. So, for example, Black, Caribbean, and African American youth in Canada reported that racism was really a significant barrier in their access to sexual health. Indigenous people also experience higher rates of poor health outcomes than non-Indigenous people in Canada, which includes HIV and other STIs. It's really important for educators to learn and understand how these historical traumas might affect young people's decision making and behaviors and to acknowledge that these historical and ongoing traumas have had these effects on on children and youth sexual health and well-being. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer. No need to apologize. I appreciate that. I think when we take the comprehensive school health approach, we draw on those social determinants of health. And I think it's really important to identify, particularly what you mentioned around stigma, discrimination, even access to information, access to supportive folks and access to care can really negatively impact many of our children and youth. So that's that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's really helpful in providing teachers with a toolkit to take careful approaches to these conversations so that we can support student well-being and reduce the risk of potentially re-traumatizing our students. You did mention earlier, as one of the guidelines for classrooms, that sexual health education is not all serious. There is an element of fun and empowerment that comes through that. So I'm wondering if we can maybe reflect on some effective learning activities or strategies for making lessons engaging and fun for our learners? Sure. So I think just to start off this question, 
I think one of the most useful activities you can implement when teaching sexual health, no matter what grade level or topic in human sexuality, is the question box. And the question box might give some people some anxiety. I know it can be scary to get asked random questions by students about sexual health, but there is a way to set yourself up for success. We have information on our website with more details, but I'll just give you the highlights here. If you haven't done a question box in the classroom before, you're going to want to start by giving everyone an identical piece of paper and tell every student they must write something down, even if it's not a question. It could be a smiley face or compliment your shoes or their favorite color. It's just really important for kids to feel that it's safe to ask their question and that they feel anonymous. Even if you as the teacher can actually tell whose writing it is, that doesn't matter as long as you know your students feel that it's a safe space to ask a question. So then you're going to collect all the papers and tell your students you'll answer the questions at the start of class. And then at the end of the day, you're going to go through the questions by yourself and sort them into three piles. So ones you can answer right away. Ones you need to look up the answer to or consult a colleague. You can also email us at tsh at ahs.ca. We're always available to help out with an answer or if you need a second opinion. And then the last pile is for ones that you can't answer. Either it's not appropriate or against the ground rules or it's not a question. And then even... As you as the teacher, get out your giggles. I'm sure there's some questions in there that might make you laugh. So then you can kind of go through them and get used to the questions before you go answer them. And then you're going to do that in the next class. So you feel very prepared. You've had your help. So this is how you're going to really conquer that question box and be successful in it. So we've kind of mentioned this throughout our talk here. But we have lots of great information on our website. So we actually have a whole section about answering questions. So everything from those permission-seeking questions to am I normal to those shock value questions. We have approaches how to tackle these questions. And then we have actually a whole library of FAQs where we have suggested answers to common student questions. Because I think answering questions is one of the things that gives teachers the biggest anxiety, but we really do want to help teachers out and set them up for success. We've also mentioned our lesson plans. So these are free to teachers to download and use. They come complete with background information, how to make the lesson inclusive, and then interactive activities. It's great because they meet all the objectives that Alberta teachers must cover for the curriculum. I'll also mention they do come in French and English. So if you teach in French, those resources are there for you too. And then we have lots of activities to engage students. Um, we also have Kahoot quizzes if teachers use those. And then I'll also mention that we do offer a teacher workshop. It's online. It's free. It just has been on hold a little while now due to our staff being redeployed to help with the pandemic, but we really do hope to get these up and running again in the new year. If you want to stay up to date on that, the best way is to either watch our website on the workshop page or follow us on social media on Twitter. Post you know, tips for teachers there, links to content, and then we do post updates about our workshops. Our Twitter handle is at teach sex health. 
Fantastic. So what I hear is that there are tons of engaging ways to teach sexual health, and you can find a lot of that information and those resources on the Teaching Sexual Health webpage. Absolutely. We will remind our listeners to visit the notes and you can access that. Thank you. Coming to the end of our conversation, you have offered just a wealth of valuable information and support to those folks who are listening. But for those folks who maybe are unable to remember all of it, what is like one thing in closing that you wish every teacher knew about teaching sexual health? I would say sexual health education saves lives. It's an upstream approach that supports addressing root causes of negative health outcomes and gives students the right information to support their well-being. And just know that students really value their sexual health education. They know it's important and they want to learn about it. And I can add to that. Thanks, Joss. I think I would say... And again, I've, I've said something similar, but that sexual health and how it's discussed, while it's constantly shifting to become better, more inclusive and accepting, keeping up with these shifts can become daunting. So just try your best, be as formed as you can, do your best with the language. And more than anything, too, I think you can let your students teach you. Kids are really well-informed these days, and just hearing their perspectives and their experiences and letting them inform you can sometimes be really, really eye-opening. And then also going back to just being open-minded and self-reflective as you teach sexual health as well. I think as teachers, we often forget that we are learners, too, and that's an important part of our practice is we're simultaneously teaching and learning. So those final reminders are really helpful for us and I think can really support us in moving forward with confidence and feeling the importance of this part of our role. And so I encourage our listeners to reflect on your values as you've been invited and also reflect on those fears and think about the important role that you can play in students' lives in empowering them and supporting their overall health and well-being into their future, which is a pretty cool gift that we as teachers can have. So thank you once more, Jocelyn Graham, Caitlin Hill, for sharing your expertise with the podcast listeners. Thank you listeners for joining us for yet another episode of the podcast Conversations on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or you can visit our website, everactive.org, for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed. <laughs>